Thanks so much for checking out this podcast from Anchor Church Southwest. We really hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, please check out our website, anchorchurch.com.au. We're starting this new series in Ecclesiastes. And uh, so today is going to be a little bit... um, Uh, I want to give you a a good overview because we're going to be spending some time in this book uh, over the next two to three months. And I want us, uh, because it's such a maybe foreign book to us or kind of a strange book, I want us to have a good grasp on what we're going to be dealing with. And so um, that's what we're doing today. And my hope is, my hope is that we would actually be able to feel the uh, the relevance of this book that is 2,500 years old, maybe 3,000 years old. And so I'm really excited to open this up. In fact, uh, this is a remix of a series. We did this series at Anchor uh, about seven, eight years ago, and that was my first sermon ever here and so or there. Um, and so glad to be revisiting uh, this series here. And a couple of my hopes that I want to give us is... I hope that we can see the relevance, but I hope that we would be able to grow in our awareness of the culture's power to form us. And so you've heard it said before, maybe you've heard it said before, if you, um, someone who loved you and who was well-meaning, a Christian maybe, went up to you and said, God has a a plan for your life. And when that was told to me, I was annoyed at that. Uh, But it it holds true. God does have a plan for our life. But one of the things I want us to get across is that the culture also has a plan for our life. Uh, The culture wants to make us into a certain kind of person with certain kind of values. And I hope that we would see that. My hope is that we would see that Christ is the ultimate answer to the question, uh, what is the good life? And ultimately, my hope is that we would uh, grow in our love and our affection and obedience to King Jesus over the next couple months. And so what we're going to do before we jump into the text, I'm going to give you a real like 30,000 foot view snapshot of the book. And much of what we are going to discuss today, I hope, will give us um, the tools to read this book well. So we're going to do two things. I'm going to ask, what is the book of Ecclesiastes and what is the book of Ecclesiastes doing? What is the book of Ecclesiastes and what it is doing? So before I do that, let me pray. Father, we thank you again for your goodness to us. We thank you that you, in fact, are here. And we're not inviting you into this space. You were already here and you've invited us into this space. And so I pray more than anything, Lord, that you would help us to become aware of your presence here today, that you would help us to learn something new and and go ahead and put that into practice in our lives. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help me to forget the things that are not going to be helpful, uh, even if I've prepared them, and help me to to remember the things uh, that will be helpful. I pray that wherever we are today, if we are discouraged, Lord, may you encourage us. If we are proud, may you humble us. If we are far, may you bring us near today in Christ. And may the words uh, of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And the church said, amen and amen. I remember a couple years ago, uh, it's more like a couple decades ago at this point, but I was invited to a a Halloween party. I don't think I've shared this story, but uh, I was invited uh, to a Halloween party. I was about 18 or 19 years old, so we're talking about a couple decades ago. And it was me, Devon, my boy, and Ray, and my brother-in-law, Carlos, and my sisters, and we didn't have, I didn't have uh, a costume to wear. This was a Halloween party. We were invited around maybe October 29th or something like that. And so I was freaking out. I said, I got to get a 
uh, I got to get a costume, right? Um, and so we go out to the weirdest place in New York City at the time, which was West 4th Street. If you've ever been there, you know it's a weird place. And so we went to every single op shop. We went to every single sort of thrift store that we could find. And I found the best outfit. And I dug my records. I, I looked on Facebook and on Instagram to see if I'd posted that photo because it would have been a gift to you for you to see that here. Uh, me as a 19-year-old with bell bottoms and an afro and like the glasses. It was, it was, it was crazy. It was, it was great. And so we, we rock up to the party. Remember, uh, Halloween, October 31st, and it's me and my sisters. We're, we're all decked out. And then we walk in. We were the only ones dressed up, right? It was mortifying. It was just like we didn't, and I mean, at 19, I, th- I don't think I really cared. I care more now, uh, but at that point, I didn't really care. I just thought I was still the best thing in the room, right? So, uh, but it, it, it really, people were looking at us like, you look out of place. Like, and if, if Ecclesiastes was invited to a Halloween party, that's how it would feel. Right? And so I need us to understand today that when the rest of the books of the Bible are talking to one another and they look at Ecclesiastes, they say, how the hell did he get into the canon? How, how did he get into this book? Because it is a weird book. It's out of place, or at least it seems to be so on the surface. And so I have a burden today to help you understand what this book is and what it's doing in order uh, that we would be transformed into the image of Christ. Because if we pick up the book of Ecclesiastes and we read it like we're reading one of the Gospels or one of the letters of Paul, we're going to get it wrong. We're, just, we're simply going to get it wrong. And so the questions I want to ask is, oh, let, me, let me go through that. Uh, the questions that I want to ask, actually, Molly, can we go to the sermon? The question that I want to ask today is, what is the book of Ecclesiastes first? And plainly put, the book of Ecclesiastes is an ancient book of philosophy that's found in the first part of our Bibles. I'm not assuming that we all know exactly the anatomy of Scripture. And so we have two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the book of Ecclesiastes is found in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament. And the way that we organize our Old Testament is very different to the way that Jesus would have or the Hebrews would have. If you find Jesus speaking about the Old Testament in the Gospels, you hear him saying a couple things. You say, you hear him saying the law, the prophets, and the writings. This is the way that they would categorize the Old Testament. And the book of Ecclesiastes is found in the writings. And in that group, there are, there's poetry and there's wisdom primarily And the book of Ecclesiastes is primarily wisdom literature. And we need to get that because if you open up this book and as we travel through this book, if we read it like we're trying to read a newspaper, we're going to get it wrong, okay? Because wisdom is concerned with the general order and patterns of living in God's creation rather than giving us specific promises for every situation, And you'll see next week where uh, this guy called Kohelet, he'll say, I hated life. And then we're like, well, that's a command I can get on board with. I I, I can do that. That's not the point of the text. The point of the text is not uh, concerned with telling you exactly what to do. Wisdom literature takes a step back and it looks at the general order and patterns of living in God's creation. Wisdom is different from knowledge, right? Knowledge is important and knowledge will give us often a step-by-step process and we love that. We can all say as much as you want, as much as we want that we hate Ikea, right? Like I hate, I, I hate, I detest 
Let me go on record. I hate going to Tempe. I hate Ikea, okay? So much so that I will research exactly where these things are. I'll sneak through the, in through the exit, get it from downstairs so I don't have to. But the one good thing about Ikea is that it gives us a step-by-step process. I go home, and I'm not worried about trying to figure out how to do it. It gives us that step-by-step process. Wisdom does not do that for us. And if we think it does, we're going to get in trouble. We often want to be told what to do, but wisdom is frustrating because it doesn't work that way. Knowledge is about simply doing the right thing. Wisdom is about being the kind of person who does the right thing. And I hope like we, we get that, we sense the difference there, that knowledge tells us the right thing to do. Wisdom makes us into the kind of people that do the right thing. And so, The first thing that we need to understand is that Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. The second thing that I want to say about Ecclesiastes is that it's largely unorthodox. And this is is what I mean. What I mean is this book has a frame to it, okay? The, The first frame is the prologue, which is what we're going to be going through today, and an ending, an epilogue at the end of the book. And in the middle, you have this guy called Kohelet. And that, that, it's not a, a, a proper name. It means preacher or teacher or assembler. And you could think of this frame as like the Morgan Freeman voice, right? If you had a choice at the end of your life to say, to, to, to get someone to narrate your life, I would choose Morgan Freeman. So I want us to think today, uh, we're looking at the Morgan Freeman voice. We're looking at the, the frame narrator. And this Morgan Freeman voice, the person who is narrating the text, he's going to be using Kohelet as a device, as a teaching device to tell us this. This is the way to not live. It's, it's actually teaching us by negation. Now, I'm not going to drop some names here, but I remember when I was, again, 18, 19, I had my first real retail job, and my boss, God love him, at times he could be a monster. He would lead us through coercion and screaming when things weren't done to his standard or his way or when things were left undone. We were so intimidated. I would get to the point that I would sneak past his office just to not say hello. This guy was like, he was vicious, but this is what I learned. I learned how not to treat people. I learned how not to lead people. I learned a lot by seeing what shouldn't be done. And the book of Ecclesiastes is much like this. It's going to teach us how to think and teach us how to live using unorthodox wisdom. That's the point of the book. In the same way, this Morgan Freeman voice is going to teach us, this is how we don't live. This is what not to think about life. And in that way, it is an unorthodox book. And it's going to be taking this very, very basic question. Because we're going to ask, well, what is it doing then? What is the book of Ecclesiastes actually doing? And it's going to ask a very, very basic question. What is the good life? What is the meaning of life? And over and over again, this Kohelet guy will try to answer the question by telling us this. The meaning of life is gained through pleasure, or money, or sex, or religion, or morality, or power. And in the end, what he says about life under the sun is that nothing matters. Like he, he, from the jump, and we'll read it in a moment, but from the jump, this is, if we read the book of Ecclesiastes, it's like one of those movies that starts at the end. And so we know where it's going. It's, he, he doesn't hide anything here. He's not trying to pull the rug from up under us. 
He's saying from the very beginning, this is what I think about life. It means nothing. Vanity, breath, smoke, mirrors. It's a deeply, if we're going to look at it seriously as a community, it's a deeply troubling book. It's hopeful when we read it correctly, but on the surface, it's a quite troubling book. It's a book, in this book, God reveals to us exactly what life is like when God doesn't reveal to us what life is for. So in this book, God reveals to us exactly what life is like when he doesn't reveal to us what life is for. And what we're ultimately going to find out over and over and over and over and over again is that life is meaningless under the sun, that it means nothing. Peter Kreeft, he's a philosopher, he, said, he says it this way, and I love, I love how he says it. He says, of course, not all of life is in vain in the short run. Solomon, or this Kohelet figure, knows that as well as anyone, it is not vain to eat. It keeps you alive. It is not vain to copulate, which is an old way of saying to have sex. It keeps the human race alive and gives pleasure. It is not vain to scratch a mosquito bite. It relieves the itching for a moment, but only for a moment. There's the rub. Short-run purpose is no compensation for long-range purposelessness. Short-run purpose is no compensation for long-range purposelessness. And it's a book that's going to help us to discover the true meaning of life. And it's a book that's actually quite modern. Even though it's, it's ancient, it is a modern book because it's asking the same questions that our culture is asking and providing the same weak answers that we provide today. And if we would just listen, I love you, I know you. If we would just get over ourselves to, and thinking that we know better than they did 2,500 years ago because we have iPhones and technology and all this kind of like goofy stuff that we use that we really still don't know how it works anyway, if we would just get over ourselves, we would see that this book has answers for us today. And it creates, listen, it creates this chasm, this, this space between the question and the answer that only Christ can fill. And that question, let me remind you, is what is the good life? What is the meaning of life? And this question is something that our culture does not simply have an answer for. And so we end up doing one of these two things. And you know, I'm telling the truth here. We either distract ourselves to death, where we don't even have the, 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 the time to ask the question, or uh, we just ignore the question all together. But there's another way. And so let me double back real quick before we get into the text. And I, I want us to get this, and I want us to carry these to uh, uh, statements with us throughout the whole series. And it's this, the book of Ecclesiastes is an unorthodox book of wisdom that teaches us how to live by telling us how not to live. And the book of Ecclesiastes is seeking to expose the ways our culture answers the question, what is the good life as holy, holy, inadequate. And so with that, let's jump in to the text. Verse one. The words of the preacher, that's Kohelet, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now, traditionally, Ecclesiastes is believed to be written by King Solomon, and he's David's son, the second king of 
Israel, the, the third technically, but the, this was the high point of this was the high point of Israel. If you can think about who this guy Kohelet is supposed to be, he's the Elon Musk of the day. He's he's the richest person, the one with the most power. And whether it was written about him or from or, or by him, what we can be sure is this: that there are these two voices, right? The frame narrator and Kohelet, who's the unorthodox wisdom teacher. And this frame narrator is is using already from the jump. He's using from the jump the the theology, the philosophy of Kohelet. And he's asking the question, what is life about? And from the start, vanity of vanities. This word hevel, which means nothing, smoke, a breath, something that is here one second and gone the next, futility, meaninglessness. Like this is, this is not easy to take. The question is then, why would we even trouble ourselves with life if from the jump, it's all for nothing. And it's a dangerous question to ask, why trouble ourselves? Because honestly, it's going to lead us to two places. It's going to either lead us to give ourselves to something true and beautiful that's going to ask us everything, or, or suicide will actually begin to make sense in this schema, right? Like, if it means nothing... If all I am is this mythical figure, Sisyphus, who's just pushing up this rock, up this hill, only for it to roll back down, for me to then go ahead and do it again, only for it to roll back down, and only for then for me to do it all over again, what is the point? Because we need to come face to face with the question in verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Ladies, this is not excusing you. What, this is talking about all of humanity. What does humanity gain? What do you gain by everything that you do? Now, toil here isn't simply uh, work, right? Like clocking in nine to five. Toil here is everything we do to try to make our lives meaningful. Toil is everything that we do. It's our attempt at finding and making meaning. And Kohelet throughout will say, you can find and make meaning, you can try through sex, and you can, you can try through religion or morality or being good, but none of that will be enough. It's another way of saying this. It's another way of asking the question, how do I know that I'm enough? How do I know that I am enough? Paul will use the word of justification in the New Testament. In other words, verse 3 is asking this, do we find our enoughness how do we find our enoughness through all the things that we do? How do we justify our existence? It's a deeply modern and troubling book. And we'll pick up in verse 4 again. A generation, he says. A, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow they flow again. Using the observations of the world of the unorthodox wisdom teacher Kohelet, the narrator simply looks at the world and says, 
like it doesn't like it, it like the same thing happens over and over again people come people go the sun rises the sun falls the wind blows here it blows there rivers flow the sea never fills up on and on and on it goes but nothing ever actually really changes and then in verse 8 he says all things are full of weariness of exhaustion you, you know there's one thing to be tired and another thing to be weary All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. Like, que sera, sera. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there, any, is there a thing at which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been, uh, it, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance Of later things yet to be among those who come after it's very frustrating for me to be sitting at my desk and thinking i have an original thought i'm going to write this original thought i'm going to publish this original thought and then i read about five books that have thought about this 100 years before i did that's my experience he concludes in verse eight that things are just full of weariness that the more we think about it the more tired we become That there's no adequate and satisfying answer to the question, what is the good life? This is an incredibly realistic and often depressing book. Kohelet has got to be like an Enneagram four or something. Like he feels the feels deeply. But the truth of the matter is that we're all a part of this book. The truth of the matter is that we're all, every single person in this room, we're all trying to figure out what it means to be enough. We are all trying to figure out how to be happy. That is such a simple question, right? And yet it is troubling when we think about the ways that we actually answer it. We're all trying to answer the question, what is the good life? And we're all going to have different answers to that one way to another. But if I know one thing is that we as a modern people are full of weariness, full of weariness, not because of COVID necessarily, those things that have affected us. But COVID, I, I, I strongly believe, exposed us more than changed us. It exposed what was already there. It exposed the ways that our pathological busyness, while we tried to cover it up with things and with experiences and with people, and when that was stripped away, that's what we were left with. That's a hard reality to face. We are weary. We're so weary because we try so damn hard to make something of ourselves to prove ourselves, to feel like we are enough. We go on all sorts of self-salvation projects, self-justifying paths. And we won't say it with our lips because if, if you're Christian, you, you won't want to say this. But with your lives, we say things like, I am what I accomplish, or I am what I know, or money will make me happy despite Evidence after evidence after evidence of people who actually have it who say it doesn't make you happy. But for us, we're like, well, it doesn't make you happy, but it'll work for me. <laughs> we think that a relationship will finally satisfy us. We say things with our time like, if I work enough, I'll finally be enough. And this is weariness. This is the weariness that Ecclesiastes will expose in us. You see, Ecclesiastes asks the question that only Christ can be the answer to. It's not about a new way of life or, or, or a philosophy. It's a person. 
It's a person who heals our weary hearts. Jesus says this in Matthew 11. Come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I want to remind you of something, that when Jesus looks at the weariness of our hearts, he doesn't offer us escape. Remember, what does he give us? He gives us equipment. And the answer to the ancient question is found where? It's found in the justifying work of Jesus where we no longer, listen, where you no longer have to feel like you need to make something of yourself because something beautiful has already been made of you. Like that is worth everything. It's got to be worth something where we no longer have to feel that the opinion of others I need to build myself up in the eyes of others so that I can be seen well in their light. Where I don't have to feel like I have to have a certain amount of money in my bank account to feel like I'm worth it. I don't have to have someone by my side to feel like finally I can be justified now. All the ways that we toil and we work to try to receive a good word is already given to you. This is what bugs me out about myself too. Not, not just about y'all, like, it's, it's, it's not me, versus, it's just, it's me with you. It's not, I'm not, like, it's, it's everyone where we try over and over again to use something to give us a good word, and yet that good word has already been given to us. The good word that you are already created in the image of God. The good word that you have been redeemed by this God. The good word that says you are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. And so you no longer have to live under the tyranny of the modern world that says you need to create yourself. The word that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us to bring us home. And now that becomes your primary identity, that becomes your center, that becomes the heaviest part about you, that becomes your reality. And when that becomes the heaviest part about you, if, if you think about the planetary systems, right? The, 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 the thing with the, with the most mass has the greatest gravitational pull where everything else then revolves around that thing. What if Christ was your greatest gravitational pull? What if Christ was the heaviest thing about you and everything else in your life revolved around him? You stop looking in the mirror. You stop looking in the mirror and you stop saying to yourself with your words or your actions, I need to prove myself here. You get to die to those voices, whether they were your parents or your teachers or some other authority figure in your life. You get to die to the voices that says you are what you know or you are what you do or you are what people think about you. Your life now doesn't just have Jesus as a very, very important part. I don't want to get us, right, at Southwest to think about Jesus as the most important part of your life because he's not. Scripture has no place for Jesus being number one in your life. Jesus isn't the most important part of your life. He is life. 
Colossians 3 says that when he appears, who is not a part of our life or the best part of our life or the greatest thing in our life, Christ, who is life, when he appears, we will be like him and we will appear with him in glory. So the answer to the question that Ecclesiastes can't answer, what is the good life, is not a philosophy, it's not a theology, it's not anything that we do. It is a person. It is Christ. Christ is the good life. That's all I got for y'all today. I'm going to invite the band up. But my hope is, listen, this is my hope, that we would see Christ. That you, not, not me or, or, or not us or, or not even the idea of a church, but that we would see Christ today. That we would put down all the ways that we try to toil, that we try to create our own lives, because what is that leading to? Weariness, a deep soul weariness. And so this is my hope, and this is my encouragement, that we would get after it, that throughout this series, that we would show up and that we would show out and that we would actually make hell take notice of a small group of disciples of Jesus that are taking ground in the world because we no longer buckle under the the lies that say we must create our own meaning because Christ is our meaning. Amen? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you that we get the opportunity, Lord, to be here together the opportunity to sing together, the opportunity to pray together, the opportunity uh, to learn together. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do a work. We can't do it. This is not ultimately up to us. And yet we want to give ourselves and our talents, our time, our treasure as a tool for you to do something beautiful. Thank you for allowing us to work with you. We love you, Jesus, and may we sing your praises now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.